Millions of frontline workers keep our economy running and are provided with the latest technology to do their jobs. But digital adoption, especially by frontline workers, is really hard. This is Frontline Innovators. We explore how to overcome challenges and achieve success when we empower our essential workers. I'm Justin Lake. And I'm Gene Signorini. Together, we speak with experts who are leading the way and driving digital transformation to the front line. This podcast is sponsored by Skillful on a mission to help frontline workers learn and use the technology needed to succeed in their jobs. Welcome to the Frontline Innovators Podcast. I'm your host, Justin Lake, and we've got another fantastic episode lined up with another great guest for today. Our guest today is Nia Christensen, who is the Director of IT, PMO Policy and Documentation for Pro Ampac. Please welcome to Frontline Innovators, Nia. Hello, Nia. Hey, Justin. Really happy to have you here today. Thank you. We had a great prep call leading into uh, today's conversation. I don't know if all of our uh, listeners understand that we always have a prep call with our guests prior to coming on to make sure that we uh, get our topics aligned for today's session. And I remember having a uh, fantastic session with you. So I'm really looking forward to, to kicking off today's interview. But let's start as we do every other show and hear from you about what you think is the biggest challenge facing the deskless or frontline workforce today. Sure. Um, my answer to that question basically has three components to it. Um, You're only allowed to give me one component for your answer. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. All ties together. It's the same answer for change management, but it's a little couple of pieces to it. So, all right. So um, I'd say the biggest challenge is failure to define and agree upon the problem while you're also taking into consideration operational maturity, and the risk tolerance. Okay. I'm taking notes here because it's we're going to have a lot. You said that very concisely, but there's a lot in there that we're going to have to go back to. Yes. Okay. So rather than explore all of that right out of the gate, why don't we hear from you a little bit about how you ended up in the role that you're in today? What's caused you to be so passionate about what you do? And then we can circle back around and talk about all the issues that you just brought up uh, in, in the opening here. Sure. Uh, so my um, my experience really started back when I was in college. Um, I really had an interest in logical, methodical uh, program type things. So I got a degree in physics. But the people side was also very interesting to me. Um, So I also do have a degree in psychology. And they're about as far apart as you can possibly be. But I would say being in IT, I draw from both of them equally. They're, They're both important. You can have all the plans in the world, but you still need the humans to do them. So, um, once I graduated, I found a job developing shop floor data collection systems. And I did that for about seven years or so. So I was out on the shop floor implementing across a bunch of different, um, uh, locations and companies. Um, one of the companies that I was with, um, posted a job for a business analyst and I had thought, you know, I'd seen all the problems that we had run into when we were programming. And I'm like, wouldn't it be great if I could ask the right questions 
ahead of time and not have all of that confusion and waste. So I went to um, our uh, the current company that I'm at right now, and we uh, and I did business analysis for a couple of years. We got acquired um, by Proam Pack back in 2015 or so. Um, and um, from that point on, I have um, run a couple of different projects. We had a really big ERP implementation that had a lot of really good takeaways from. Um, and as I uh, kind of grew in um, the role, I ended up hooking up with our uh, continuous improvement department. So I've been pulling in some continuous improvement ideas, some IT ideas, just overall how to get things done. Because we really had to construct a completely new IT department because we were all kind of separate and really decide who we want to be as an organization. So that's kind of what I've been doing. I started in IT and now I've been branching out to a couple of different um, different departments. I'm always fascinated with people that have, um, especially education backgrounds, that sound like they're so um, obtuse from one another. You know, I, maybe that's not the right way to describe it, but, you know, physics and psychology are like two completely different ways of thinking, I would imagine. Let's let's go back to that for a few minutes. Yeah, Let, let's. So I, I love what you said, and I, I feel like I just want to explore it a little bit further. So, you know, physics kind of, uh, I don't know, my, my take on it as a non-academic would be that all of the people that we talk about on the show and all of my experiences from my day job, certainly those externally facing where we're talking about the men and women on the front lines of the global workforce. It's the diversity of them that we cherish, but that also makes it so that there's not a single answer to every question, right? And I guess that's really maybe at the root of my question is, you know, with physics at the end, if you do enough research, there's a single answer to why material behaves the way that that material behaves under a certain temperature, under a certain load or whatever the case may be, right? Like it, it is defined. It's not always the same with two humans or 200 humans or 20,000 humans. We're going to see some variation in that. So we can apply the same force to use my physics you know, example. We can apply the same force. We can be working under the same temperature. We can be in the same environmental conditions. And uh, there's going to be a lot of variation between the people side of those things. And uh, I think that's what makes part of what we both do interesting for different reasons, but it is uh, definitely, you know, quite a bit contrasted from the laws of physics, which it seems to me would be more exact. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and I know I've heard uh, some of your podcasts talking on change management, mm -hmm. and that is one of the things that I've really um, locked into with our company right now is training our team on change management because it does give somewhat of a framework. You know, we might not have all of the variables because they're humans and we're, we're not going to get there. But when it comes to change management frameworks like ADCAR, um, yep. you know, like these are the questions that people will naturally be having as they go through change. And it's not necessarily a bad thing. You know, I know a lot of people talk about, you know, like, well, why are they putting up 
so much, you know, problems and why can't I want to come back to the agreement on the problem piece. So I'm not ignoring that. I, I do want to come back to it. But I, I also think that this conversation is highlighting something on my journey as just a human. Uh, I realized that my, my problem solving tendencies are such that I do want to find an answer. I don't usually think that we have found the answer right out of the gate. So I'm very willing to go back and iterate and, and try things. But I do think it, there's something in me that aspires to find ultimately the best answer, the best way to do something, right? And this is true in my personal life and also how I might influence things, you know, at our company during the day and stuff like that. But at the same time, I feel conflicted because I'm also a pretty empathetic guy. I really believe in the human element of that. And so I think one of my learnings is I've just uh, matured as a person. Some may agree that I'm or not agree that I'm maturing. But as I've matured as an individual, I, I'm starting to come to the realization that that's a little bit of a tension that I have in, in my brain all the time is that I want an answer. And I also want to be supportive of the humans. And so by definition, those humans may not... Uh, get just a single answer to be successful, right? The method, the approach, the technology, in my case, because we're talking a lot about tech, there may not just be a single way to solve that problem. And so I think that's why I'm I was so curious about your background, because it does seem like as I've gotten to know myself or just think a little bit more and become more self-aware of those things, it does seem like it's kind of a constant tension. And um, so hopefully I can continue to be better and learn from people like you about how maybe I can apply you know, uh, principles to to satisfy both sides of that equation. Yeah, yeah. Problem solving. And this is where all of my CI, um, all the smart people that I've been able to work with um, really comes into it. You know, when it comes to in business, um, when you come to someone with a problem or your manager with a problem, so many times they say, don't come to me with a problem, come to me with a solution. So, yeah. you know, there is really a drive if you're a professional and if you're a higher level professional to come with a solution right away. Right. And I think that um, that does a disservice to being able to articulate what that problem is in the first place. Um, we, a lot of times we'll have a problem that we're talking about and the best solution, um, may not be to solve the problem. It might be to accept the problem, you know, like this, let's actually run the numbers. You know, like I understand there's this cool new application that's gonna, you know, do all this cool stuff, but in the end, do we already have an application that does that or, um, is it something that, you know, maybe we just put some more uh, uh, job instructions out there that we could help our team with? And I think that both for projects and for change management as a whole, um, being able to dig into what that problem is and have that common understanding that, yes, this is a problem that's worth solving will do so many things when it comes to adoption, you know, having people come along with you for the ride because they want to solve the problem, yeah. you know, it, it, or selling yourself either with the product or just internally with change management. You know, we, tr we, we can see where projects are going. We can see the problems that are going to happen. Um, and so 
so many times we come in early and we're trying to sell change management to say, here, this is going to be the best solution. But, you know, it comes back to those people saying that's not a problem yet. Yeah. I, I don't see that. I, I, I'm not, I'm not buying into that thing being a problem yet. So I don't need that yet, but of course we know, you know, you get into the project and then it is a problem and then we have the solution, but sometimes you have to be patient for that stuff. So this is a great segue back to those opening points that you made. Uh, Cause I, I am intrigued by your uh, perception on that. And maybe it's best to start if, if you can think of an example where perhaps some stakeholders in the organization felt that there was a problem and, and upon further research with some of the affected, you know, people in the organization, you determined that there wasn't a problem. Is there an example that comes to mind? Oh, yeah. that would, I did it. Like okay. Awesome. Tell us. Oh no, I feel big time. All right. So, um, when we first got acquired, um, I'll give you a little history. When we got acquired back in 2015, um, we had a couple of different maturity levels of organizations coming together. And it rolls back to, you know, some certifications that we have. And there's very good reasons for all of us being where we were. Um, but the organization that I came with um, had a relatively mature op operational maturity. We're pretty mature when it came to how we approached things in IT and in that organization as a whole, meaning, you know, we had defined processes. We um, looked for continuous improvement activities. Everybody was on board. We had KPIs wrapped around everything. And so much to the fact that there was probably a fair amount of waste, you know, back to that problem that we were talking about earlier, we had solved for so many things that weren't maybe not problems anymore, you know? So there was, there was a whole lot of stuff out there, things that we had run into. Um, and some of the other organizations that came together um, maybe didn't need to go to that extent. You know, it wasn't something that the business demanded of them or our customers demanded of them. And so I came in and again, I was a business analyst at the time. And um, so I did documentation. In fact, it's still in my title and I love it to death. And um, I know. <laughs> you may be the first person I've met that's as enthusiastic and passionate about documentation as you are, but I love it. Yeah. Well, like process of translating ideas into word or visual models and having just the right amount of information in there yeah. to get need out of it and not complicate it further is an art form. It's definitely an art form. I totally agree. It's easier. There, there's the old expression that says, uh, I think it was like an old Mark Twain story or something like that, that where he wrote, written a letter and it was seven pages or something like that. And he said, you know, so sorry, I had to send, you know, this seven page letter. I didn't have time to make it shorter. Exactly. It's exactly that. <laughs> yeah, that that's a I think that's really powerful because it's easy to just like, you know, brain dump and get all the thoughts out, but really refining them and and making it concise is actually an absolute art form. So anyway, I didn't mean to interrupt you on that, but keep going. Yeah, yeah. No, so so that was my that was my bad on that. Um so I went 
And with my new team, so my new IT leadership team, um, I had developed a business requirements spec and it was beautiful. It had use cases and like all of these types of visual models. Um, it wasn't required to use all of them, but I'm like, here's this big, beautiful thing. And um, it was a total flop. Like these were things that we, you know, you didn't necessarily need in projects. So I would have a, you know, we required a fully developed test plan for every single iteration of things for all of our changes. Um, I'll say regardless of size, meaning uh, not super tiny, but you know, a small stuff. Yeah. And um, the, the team was like, we don't need this. You know, we have professional people and it's gonna take more time to fill out the paperwork than actually doing those value-added activities. And what are we actually going to get out of the paperwork? You know, like if we need it, that's good. We should definitely go for that. We should definitely make sure we have a common understanding of the thing that we're doing. But it's not something that should necessarily be required. You know, and I had to stop and think about it because... So many times we just assume that the best practices or the operational maturity is we should go to five. Absolutely. Keep going. Everything. Let's get it to that point. But in doing that, you sacrifice a couple of things. You can sacrifice um, non-value added activity, you know, in manufacturing. We're up against, you know, putting an actual machine out on the floor that produces product. And so we always have to be mindful of actually taking that cost away and not being able to use that capital out on the floor. You you don't want to tie up capital. You want to be producing the value added activities. Um, so you, you sacrifice that. Um, you also sacrifice, you know, you can sacrifice people waiting and, um, going through the process um, and doing all of these extra steps and kind of going hands off, like they're not engaged. You know, when you're telling people all of the steps for all of the things, it it reduces that creativity or it can. It can reduce that creativity or that problem solving or that personal touch to actually figure out what's the best way to do this, you know? So, so I think that... Um, I, I try to jump it. And I see that so many times in with some of my peers and people who really want to implement best practices is they're trying to solve problems, you know, way out one year, two year, three years that are going to be happening because they've been through it and they know it. And, you know, that's some of the challenges I think that we run into is the contestability of that. You have people that you're trying to bring along on this change journey that they're like, that's not going to happen. We 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 aren't going to have that problem yet. Let's not build in extra process, extra waste um, to to buffer against that. Let's solve the problem that we have at hand that we all agree is a problem. You know, so. <laughs> that's eight years worth of learning, but yeah, 
originally that was the problem that I had. I'm just like, yeah, best practice. Let's go. We're going to hit a five. We're, we're going for it. Do you see, I, one thing I've noticed after a lot of the conversations we've had on the podcast and, and some of my experiences from, you know, my, my day job as well is a lot of times the problem that we're solving with a new technology implementation actually doesn't necessarily solve anything for the people that are going to be most affected. So for example, we may be implementing new field service management software, some type of enterprise asset management software. The people that are going to actually interact with the software, especially those frontline workers themselves, it may actually just be a thorn in their side, flat out. It may just take them longer. It may be more of a pain in the neck for them to do this job. But the end goal is that we've got tens of millions or hundreds of millions of dollars of capital you know, equipment that will be maintained better, will cost the company less, will have greater uptime, will perform better, be safer, right? All those other things that, that are important to the business as a whole. But the implication of this improvement continuous improvement uh, exercise is that, yes, yeah, some people at the at the outer uh, limits of the business are going to be affected because they're going to have to do more in some mobile or web application in order to do that, right? So they may not agree with the problem. They just may not care, right? <laughs> but they're going to be affected by that anyway. Have you seen circumstances like that? And is it, does that, if so, does that kind of change how you would approach the the change management and the psychology of, of this implementation? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, one of the things that you always want to do is make sure you have the right team. Um, when it comes to bringing different areas in, you want to make sure you have representation from that subset of people, all of them. You know, you want to make sure, but I know a lot of times with us folks who are doing a lot of the analysis, we're, we're finding all of that stuff before we actually go out there and say, hey, you know, is this is this actually a, a problem that that we need to solve? And sometimes, I don't know if I have any concrete examples, but, um, you know, sometimes it takes digging into those things with them to see if this is, in fact, a problem. So one of the things that we do in continuous improvement is called five whys. And it you go through and you say what problem that you have. And then you say, well, why is that a problem? And then you answer it and you say, well, why is that a problem? And you wanna keep kind of pushing to the point of actually finding what the problem is that everybody like, yes, that that's the problem. Um, and then once you have that problem, you wanna decide what to do with it, which is where my risk statement comes in. Um, I alluded to it a little bit before that, you know, sometimes it is to do a rip and replace of things, but sometimes it is just to, you know, provide more work instructions mm -hmm. or to have some sort of a incentive or wrap a KPI with some sort of uh, reinforcement, like a pizza party or whatever around it. You know, it, it's not always to do this big, beautiful thing that we need to do. You know, and when when you talk to the people on the floor, they know this. Like, they are so smart, so smart. They they are the ones with the solutions a lot of times. Um, and so, just to really make sure you get that representation, 
in there, um, I think is is so very important to getting all of those people. Because then you can go down the rest of change management. You can create the work instructions. You can have the training seminars. You can have your sponsors be vocally supportive of it. And you can have the KPIs. You can do all of that stuff. But again, it's that problem that you want to make sure that you understand and it is a legitimate problem to solve. Yeah. In, in a large organization, well, let, let me make a statement first about some things that I notice kind of on the opposite side of this. It, even in a small organization like ours, relative to most of the customers that we serve and most of the guests that I interview on the podcast, we're a tiny little company comparatively. And even in the context of our size, I can see some things that come in as um, problem definitions that might be unique to an individual. So they may speak up about something and and I, I we don't use the five wise process, although I may try to implement something similar to that, but to dig in, but we, we have a probably less formal way of doing that to say, you know, essentially why, what are you trying to solve? What is that doing? How is that affecting your day as you're using the technology and things like that? We're trying to understand that. But the very next question I always go to then is, is this person the only person that's affected by this? You know, when you when you make decisions on such a small sample size, what I've noticed happen is that you can tend to uh, adjust based on those that are most vocal or talk the loudest. And that's not usually the best way to handle that. And so I'm curious how you might go about kind of broadening or expanding the sample size for feedback so that when you're asking that question, what is the problem? Why is that a problem? Why is it a problem? Why is it a problem, et cetera, that, you know, I don't think you're suggesting to just ask that of one person, but how do you do that, you know, more uh, broadly to make sure that you are collecting a large enough sample size to make an educated decision? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we do have the loud squeaky wheels, of course, and many times they're right. But like you said, a lot of the people who kind of sit back and noodle on it, you know, they have ideas that are critical to bringing into. So a lot of times it's it's part of the elicitation. So one of the things that um, that we have in uh, that you can do with the five whys or other problem solving methodologies is rather than asking an open-ended question and just seeing who talks, mm -hmm. go and you get yourself some post-its and you ask the questions like normal, but then you say, all right, we're going to, we're going to write down our answers and we're going to find out, you know, who thinks what? It, they don't have to have their names on it. Of course, you know you can do it anonymous, anonymously, but um, that kind of takes away the the very vocal people who want to right. say it and allows people to really think. And then you go and you put it on the board, and then you can t talk through some of these elements to see um, what everybody thinks about each of them. Right. Uh, another thing that I've done in the past is um, surveys. And um, just sending them out to the entire group of people, subset, it happens to be IT leadership in my um, yep. side of things, but um, doing a survey and maybe having like a slider, how much of a problem is this? You know, what do you see? Like, okay, I have this, but where do you see? 
you know, and then you can in aggregate put those things together and have a really uh, a lot better idea of what problems are actually out there and um, whether or not it's just this one person who's this one little bat way over here where everybody else is over here. It makes it right. a little bit obvious then. Yeah, you reminded me even within the realm of one stakeholder's head, what is a significant, severe, urgent problem statement for them today when stack ranked against the problem statements from last week or the week before might not be as urgent as they feel like it is right now because there's a lot of emotion tied to that. And, and I'm thinking of a very specific customer example where he said, Justin, you guys have got to implement this thing. And uh, what the thing was doesn't even really matter. And I said, well, you, you guys are the only ones that are really asking for this thing. We're not hearing this kind of same feedback from our customers. And so, you know, having a, trying to be constructive about, you know, trying to diagnose the, the importance of this. And is this something that we should consider? And so then I came back and I said, well, this is happened to be a very vocal person. And I went back and I said, well, there are three or four other things that you recently asked for. How does this one stack up against those? And he goes, oh, this would be at the bottom of that list. I was, like, <laughs> I was like, okay, well, the other things that we had talked about are things that other customers are asking for too, right? Oh. Now we're, we're a customer facing, you know, technology company. So I'm trying to address, you know, those are my stakeholders as our external people. But I think the same approach could be used even wow. internally in an organization to say, okay, let's take the emotion out of this a little bit. Because right now it was hot. Something had happened that day. Hey, this is the most important thing in the entire universe in this 30 minute segment of my day. But in the grand scheme of things, and you broaden the, the perspective a little bit, it turned out it really wasn't that big of a deal. And then when I could make the case for the fact that, well, these other problem statements that you had last week, those are more aligned with what other people like you are also experiencing. It made it even easier for both of us, actually, to feel comfortable then saying, well, these other two things should float to the top of the list. And the fact that others are seeing the same thing that I am makes me even feel better about my own prioritization, right? And so that we came away from that conversation clear as day about what we needed to go do. And uh, so th that just, that, that stood out to me as you were describing the, the circumstance, because I do think that um, sometimes there is a prioritization that has to happen. Um, and it doesn't mean that that other problem doesn't still exist. doesn't mean that it's not even something that we should reconsider later, right? This iterative mindset means that we may come back to that thing later and recognize it is still important and there is still some urgency around it. <laughs> But when we try to take the emotion out and stack rank them, as you've described, and, and as I told with my customer story, um, you know, it really helps to make it more objective and a little less emotionally driven. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, um, it's funny that you talk about the prioritization piece, because this was one of my other visual models that I was able to put together uh, for the organization was a a, a project evaluation tool, You'll, uh, I'll say. Um, because when it comes, and it takes some of that emotion out, and this is why I bring it up, is when it comes to implementing a new thing, solving the problem, doing the thing, you know, there's, there's positive and negative statements to it. You know, it's not, and people, if you have emotion in it, they're going to be like, oh, this, this customer is so mad, so mad. And, you know, they get fixated on it, but if you're able to take a step back and say, all right, absolutely, this customer is mad. Um, let's take a look at some of the positives. You know, what are what are what are some of the positives that projects bring? Uh, well, you know, we 
increase number of customers, our, our EBITDA gets better, our, um, we have time savings, we have increased safety. Um, and, you know, all of those might not carry the same amount of weight, you know? So when you're talking through projects, if you have something that you can show, here are the positives. Also, here are the negatives. Cost, you know, um, uh, uh, technical complexity, you know, it might be something that's really hard to do, not just a, a, a plug and play type of thing. Um, what, when you take a look at that and kind of step back um, and walk them through each of those elements, like, all right, so you say you have customer problems, is it all the customers? No, no. Okay. All right. Is it going to give us a competitive advantage? You know, do we want to dig into this because that that's the next new thing coming? Oh, no, no, not really. All right. Okay. How many, how many customers do we not have problems with? Oh, well, we have 6,000 customers that we don't have a problem with. Okay. All right. So, you know, when it comes to ranking those things, um, having a, a more factual based set of criteria where you can talk through them, you can pop out with a score that says, all right, this is a 3.4 and you can't capture everything. There's stuff that yeah. we're not going to know about because, you know, it's maybe proprietary or it's coming in the future and that's fine, yeah. but it'll at least give us a starting point to take some of that emotion out and really put some concrete numbers into how do we prioritize this if it's even a problem. Yeah. I love the idea of having some type of, of scoring mechanism to try to introduce some objectivity, take the emotion and subjectivity out. You know, it's, it's not perfect. And and I, I actually don't even aspire to get that to be a perfectly numerical decision-making framework when we've implemented similar things. At some point we do need to rely on our, you know, our gut. Yeah. And, yeah. and if nothing else is a tiebreaker, because oftentimes using a more objective approach, you can still come up with two or three things that essentially come out tied from a scoring mechanism. So then at some point, like we need to put our brains and our heart back into it and say, okay, well, if, if we were just picking from these three, which is now what we're doing, which one do we think is going to get the best result? Right. But we're, we're doing that based on, uh, you know, less emotion and a little bit more fact-based to, to feel more comfortable about it. You know? So I think that makes a lot of sense. It's actually a good segue. We're, we're already coming up close on time, but there's a, another topic that I have highlighted from our previous conversation that I really wanted to come back to. And I know that you're you're passionate about evangelizing for the importance of change management in your organization. And we touched on this a little bit previously, and I, I just want to spend the last few minutes talking about this. And part of my question is really about how to build the business case for training and for implementing change management. I'm actually speaking with a lot of companies, both on the podcast and outside the podcast, who are trying to elevate their maturity from an OCM perspective. And of course, I have a vested interest in my day job from a training platform standpoint to help companies understand how to uh, make the business case for those types of investments, right? And so I'm just curious to get your take on that. Um, what tools you've used, what practices you've used, what obstacles you've run into? I know that's a very broad and open question, but I'd just like to get your take on it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I would say, you know, it, it's been kind of a long journey internally with our organizational change management um, at our at our organization, um, because the fact of the matter is, it's the problem is not immediate. 
that we need to right. solve, you know, and you don't have, you know, people come into it and they don't have a defined agreed upon problem that they're talking about solving. They're solving these problems that they think might happen way out in the future, mm. you know, and of course, as I, I've talked with, uh, you know, a lot of really smart supervisors and managers out there and they just absolutely don't think it's a problem mm-hmm. period and there's nothing that you can do to convince them that you're going to have to check the ability of somebody after you've implemented it to do all of this stuff they're like we can handle that we know our people it's it's fine um and so in talking with my team and probably externally what you what I have found as being very helpful is to, again, really dig into that problem that they're having. Generally, it doesn't start with the awareness or desire of it. Generally, where you end up plugging in, where most people start, is training materials. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if, if they have that and they feel that and they know and they agree that that's a problem, we need to have training materials, we need to have a training plan. You know, sometimes you have to start there. You can't start at the very beginning. And, and sometimes you just come in and say, okay, I can help you with your training materials. By the way, if we were to run into any of these other problems, um, then I'll have those things at the ready. You know, right. we have other um, off, uh, abilities out there that we can help with. Um, but then they'll start trusting you to do the training, to do the reinforcement. Reinforcement's a really hard one too, to to really make sure that you plug in. And once you start solving the problems that they agree are problems, then they'll you become a trusted person to them. And when they start running in and they do start having those other problems, or they may not, you know, some people legitimately don't, but some do start having some of those other problems with participation. Like people just aren't coming. I don't understand why, you know what you helped me. And I remember you saying something about this problem that um, can, can you just remind me what, what it was that you said about that, you know, and then you have the in and, you know, it, it sometimes is a long process So I've implemented portfolio management over a couple of different, I've got IT, I've got finance, I've got um, our new machine implementations across the enterprise, and I just kicked off our continuous improvement guys. And, you know, you want to make sure that when you're coming in, you know, it, it took our, our continuous improvement guys five years, I think. For me to actually get buy-in to help them with their portfolio because it wasn't a problem at first. It wasn't yeah. something I was trying to solve. But I did some other projects with them and I partnered up with them and they're like, all right, you know, we trust her to do those things. And I've talked about them in meetings and, and whatnot when I'm kicking off that that just actually like two months ago, we just kicked it off. And now we have a portfolio, I'm gonna guess. 30 projects out there that across our, our program that people are running, you know, and so it's something that takes time. And that's so hard to build that trust with the people 
and for it to take some time, but it's something that you really have to wait. Otherwise you're going to be kind of pushing and then they're going to be like, yeah, I'm not buying. That's a problem. I'm sorry. Yeah. Well, I had a, a version come up with a um, customer, an, an external organization that we're working with. And we were having a business case conversation about the potential for implementation of our platform. And they said, well, how can we look for a business case around, you know, where Skillful is going to give us an ROI by reducing our training cost? And I, I kind of had this epiphany moment. I said, the problem is that you're not spending any money on training right now. There's no way you're going to get an ROI on this. You're actually not doing the thing yeah. that you should be doing in any format. So there is no cost reduction on training. That, but that's not what your problem is. That is the solution. Improving your training, whether through our platform or otherwise, is part of the solution. But the actual problem is all the downstream implications of you not training your frontline workforce successfully on how to do the things that are required for their job. And so it it requires a bit of a leap of faith in, in a, a different way of thinking about it, right? Training is a solution. Change management is a solution. But nobody has a like you don't come into it saying, well, how can I save money on my current change management strategy? Because if you don't have an OCM strategy, you know, and a practice in place and, and have that capability inside your organization, then you're not going to reduce the cost of change management. What you're doing is you're improving the effectiveness of your project and ensuring your outcomes, you know, all the other things that come with that. And so it, it is a little bit of a reframing. And you've talked about trust several times on this. And I think that's something that is worth you know, uh, just reinforcing as we kind of wrap up the conversation today is that a lot of what we've talked about today does boil down to trust and building relationships between us as humans with the other humans that we're working with both as, you know, uh, stakeholders and decision makers and those who are affected by the programs that we're implementing. But building that trust is paramount to success for all of us together. And perhaps a way to do that, you've indicated this a few times, and I think this is something I'm recognizing, uh, you know, outside of the podcast too, is maybe not expecting full embrace of a full system-wide implementation or solution to that problem all at one time. But let's break this down to something that's easier to uh, accept, lower risk profile for now, get everybody right. comfortable on that, earn the trust together with a smaller sample size. And then let it be pulled in exactly as you said, so that you're not pushing, but then you you earn the trust and let it be pulled in. And I think I'm thinking of it in terms of the business that I run during the day and how I can use that approach to improve uh, the interactions that we have with prospects and customers. But I think that same thing would apply no matter where you fit, um, no matter what problems you're solving in your day job, um, you know, to take that approach to break things into smaller chunks so where you can earn trust from the other humans. So thank you for sharing those ideas on that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, when it comes to, uh, I'll say one more thing with the, the ROI, um, bringing the five Y's back in, mm -hmm. um, you know, if we're, if we're trying to prove out change management and the return that it's going to give, um, if, if we're able to go out and do the five Y's and be able to tie it back to a piece in change management, like, oh yeah, we, you know, we're having a problem with with this uh, machine having variable run rates. Well, okay, let's talk about why. Oh, okay, and you dig down and you might get to improper training. You can tie that back. You get a monetary number of uh, actually doing it the right way. You know, and I'll, I'll say a lot of stuff comes back to training. 
you know, that's a, that's a pretty easy return to prove out. So I would say if, if if we're looking for concrete numbers, I would start there, talk to the supervisors, talk to the, the people on the floor, talk to the managers, all of that and see what their problems are. If you can dig down enough that it comes back to training somehow, then you can tie it in and you can get your foot in the door and you can solve that problem. And it'll such. I love it. That's a great way for us to end up. Nia, thank you so much for your time today. You're very welcome. To our audience, we're going to wrap it up there. Thank you so much for investing this time with us to explore others' experiences and ideas around technology adoption with frontline teams. Hopefully, you're able to take some ideas from today and put it to work with the frontline teams that you support. And unless this is your first episode of Frontline Innovators, you probably already know that this podcast is sponsored by Skillful, the only end-to-end systems training platform that's optimized for frontline operations. You can learn more about how you can solve your frontline systems training challenges by visiting skillful.com. Yes, I spell it every time. It's S-K-Y-L-L-F-U-L.com. Thank you so much, Nia. Thank you so much for joining and I hope to see everybody on the next episode.